Did you know that slowing aging by a couple of percent would save more money than eradicating cancer? There are many reasons to be passionate about aging research, but this is perhaps the major one. To get out this message, we decided to start a podcast at VitaDAO. I'm Camille, also known as the Aging Scientist on Twitter, and I will be hosting this podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Joris Dion, who is a principal investigator at Siegert Cologne in Germany, where he studies human genetics of longevity. We talked about so many things, it is hard to even list them all. We talked first about heritability of longevity, then the so-called missing heritability, famous genetic variants with a strong impact on longevity, like APOE and others, the interaction of environment and genes, then we also discussed why human genetics seems to disagree with mouth genetics and lifespan studies. And finally, we talked about the importance of rare variants and using candidate approaches that combine human genetics with validation in animal models. I hope you will enjoy this podcast as much as I did. It's great to have you here today on our podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And one of the reasons is that I have a lot of questions about genetics. I think the human genetics of aging are really, really important to the field. And we will talk about this later in more detail. I think they uncover an important gap between what we see in model systems and what we see in humans. But before we go into detail, let's start with some basic things. How do we study genetics? Like what, what do you do as a geneticist? You work in Cologne, right? Yes, correct. I work at, at the Max Planck Institute for Biology of Aging in Cologne. Is it a good env environment? Do you like it? Do you get like interaction with different people who do other kinds of research? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different uh, aging research going on. Of course, we have our own Max Planck, but we also have the, the CCAT cluster here, which is part of the university, where also a lot of aging research is ongoing. There's not so much genetic work going on. So there, there are some groups doing genetic work on, on Alzheimer's disease, but not on, um, on longevity or aging. By itself, it's anyway a very small field, so there are not so many people doing it. Um, and, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of different types of research going on. So the basic research, which most of this is done here in, in the Max Planck, but also more applied research, which more translational, uh, going in the direction of the humans, which is more done, I would say, in the clinic. So it's a nice combination of all different kinds of groups we have here on campus. Yes, Seekert in Cologne is an amazing place to do aging research. It's also a good city to live. So I guess for any grad student, it's worth applying. Definitely. And we have, we have every year we have this um, the CGA, so there's the graduate school where people can apply to come join uh, us here on campus so that you can apply then at one at once both for positions in CCAT and MPI because officially our MPI is part of CCAT. So there are definitely good opportunities. Also for master students, we have a nice graduate program where you can come here as a master student and do a master that is focused on uh, on the biology of aging as well. But last I checked, it was quite competitive to get into CCAT. Yes, for, to it, going to this graduate school, it's definitely very competitive. Of course, there's always options outside of it to apply to specific labs. Um, but yeah, the, the, the graduate school is always a very competitive uh, process. 
Yeah, there's a lot of cool work uh, going on in Cologne. Soon I'll be interviewing Rudolf Wiesner, who works on mitochondrial DNA deletions, also one of my favorite subjects. But yeah, let's let's stick with genetics. So what one burning question that I always had was about the so-called heritability of longevity. How heritable is our ability to live a long life? Yeah, so that's a, actually a very interesting question. We also ask ourselves because it's not have, it has not been established yet. So there have been heritability studies, but these heritability studies have o o always focused on lifespan as the outcome. So how long you live in general, not at longevity, which we consider a different trait, namely living to an extremely old age. So there are different ways in which people looked at the heritability of lifespan in this case. So most of the studies started with, with twin studies. So you take identical twins, monozygotic, uh, but you also take dizygotic twins. And based on that, you can calculate how heritable a certain trait is. I will not go into to the details, but if you do that and you take lifespan, so how long the people actually lived, so how long the twins lived, they came to an estimate of around maximum 25%, I would say, of heritability of lifespan. So then other people tried different approaches and actually looked more at uh, extended pedigrees. So this is another way of, of looking at the heritability. And those actually show that it's probably much lower. It's probably more likely around 10%. Um, and part of the, the effects that have been observed before might be to assortative mating. Um, but this is lifespan. If we look at longevity, we haven't estimated the heritability yet. And the reason is that we just do not have sufficient numbers of twins, for example, that live to an extremely old age to make this comparison about how, about how long they live and how heritable that is. What we do know, however, and this is um, work mostly done by my previous supervisor, my PhD supervisor in Leiden, Aileen Slagboom, is that they actually show that if you um, take people that belong to the 10% longest lift for their birth cohort, this is really inherited uh, across generations. So you can actually see that if you uh, take these people that, that live to this extremely old age in one generation, you can actually see that in the second generation, their offspring is also enriched for this phenotype. So we think it's definitely heritable, but we don't have an exact estimate for how heritable longevity actually is. All right, so let me get this straight because this does not seem trivial. So there is longevity, there is survival, and there is lifespan. Is it correct to say that lifespan will be biased also by factors that are non-aging and that's why it's different from longevity or why is it different? Yeah, potentially. So what we think, of course, with lifespan, it's an, a lot influenced by death due to age-related diseases. So people can die during their life of many different reasons. What we hope to find, actually, is if we look at the extreme end of the spectrum, that we would identify there the people that have potentially protective uh, factors that protect them against all these age-related diseases, or that, that there are other factors outside of the, the normal causes of death that... Um, that led to this. So we treat it as different phenotypes. And it's also done for, for other things. If you look at diabetes, people take a cutoff of a glucose level. So they say glucose level above a certain um, threshold is considered a diabetic. Not It's, not, it's a non-diabetic. But you can also actually do a genetic uh, analysis of just the glucose level. So you can also treat it as a so-called quantitative trait or as a dichromatous trait. And we... We want to approach 
longevity more as a dichronometer trait, and we actually think it's different. Also, that the the correlation between lifespan as a trait and longevity as a trait is not one, so it's definitely not exactly the same. And we might we hope that by looking at this longevity, we might find these things that mostly protect people. Well, if we, we know that if you look at mortality or lifespan, yes, you find many factors where we know that they kill you earlier. And we actually looking for the things that make you live longer, ideally. All right. A follow-up question, hopefully not too much getting into demographics, but would you say in that case, extreme survivorship or maximum lifespan is then a better measure of actual aging rate than median lifespans in humans? A better measure of, of aging rate is, is hard to say. I mean, what, what we see is we have seen an enrichment in this very long-lived people of people that are still quite healthy relative relative to, to what you would expect. So we think that it, that they have something that may may say that they slow uh, have a slower no slowed aging. That's what I want to say. But if you look in the general population, medium lifespan, it's it's very variable and it's also, I mean, in general, also for longevity, but definitely also for lifespan. Most of it is de definitely environmentally driven. So a lot of variation fluctuations that we have seen over the median lifespan over generations now it is likely, very likely attributable to environmental factors. We just get, get better in improving our environment. And that is why our medium lifespan is increasing. If that means that we are aging slower, I don't know, um, in the sense that people live longer, but they get also diseased for longer. So I, they, they're definitely not aging healthier. Yes, they live longer, but they are not living healthier. We are just getting better in in um, keeping these people alive, I would say, but not actually managing to move um, move their, their whole aging rate in a direction that we would like to see. And how then do you capture this genetic component of aging or longevity? What's the basic workflow that you do to discover genetic variants that are linked with aging? Yeah, so there, there, there are different approaches that you can use. So many people just focus on so-called single nucleotide polymorphism. So these are variants uh, in your DNA where there's just one place in the genome that's changed. This is one base pair. This is what we call single nucleotide polymorphisms. There are other also things, other things you can study, like copy number variation or insertion deletions. But most of the research is really focused on this single nucleotide polymorphisms, and you can study them um, at the population level, and that is often done with so-called genome-wide association studies. So, what you then do is you take all the single nucleotide polymorphisms across the genome, and some of those have actually been measured. Other, others have been predicted based on what you have measured. And then you do that across many different populations. And then you look, is there an enrichment in the frequency of certain uh, polymorphisms in your cases versus your controls? It could be an enrichment. It could be a depletion. It could go both directions. So this is the thing that people do mostly at the population level. You can also use a family-based approach. And if you use the family-based approach, you can look within families, if there are specific regions in the genome that are shared between long-lived family members that are absent in control. So in that way, you can also take into account the familial comp component of longevity, and that might lead to, to other findings than the population-based studies. 
But there you need the long-lived families. And of course, this is these are very hard to obtain. So there's not so much research done in that direction. Most research on the genetics of longevity, where I was where I was also involved in, has been at this population level, where we just compare the frequency between case and controls, ideally in individuals all across the world. So there are several different approaches. You can study the general population, you can study families that are enriched for longevity, and then there are also twin studies that uh, you can do. Yes, but, but, but twin studies are often not used to actually look what the genetic component is. Twin studies are often used to estimate how much heritability there is, but they are, because also often they are quite small, they are then not used to actually look at which variants contribute. It can be done in theory, but often that's not done in twins. So is this related to the concept of missing heritability? Is this that like there is a certain heritability found, let's say, in twin studies, but then it's hard to confirm it in genome-wide association studies? Is this correct, my understanding here? That's correct, yeah. So the, the missing heritable component is coming really from these traits where people are already long studying them. And then they, for example, showed in twin studies, the trait was 70% heritable. But then if they do genetic studies, massive genetic studies, they can only explain maybe 50, 60%. So there is this part missing. And, the, and there's always a discussion, is this part missing? Because the estimation from the twin studies is, is, is an overestimation. Or is it because the genetic studies can only detect a certain type of variation? And there's maybe other types of variation, um, which could, for example, be rare variants, but it could also be copy number variation, indels, that explain this, this missing part. And it's always hard to, to figure out what it is. But in many cases, it has been shown that actually the twin estimation was an overestimation and that actually the, the, the component is likely smaller than originally thought. So they meet, meet somewhere in the middle, like twin studies overestimate and the others underestimate? Yeah. So now, for example, if you look at height, which is kind of the most well-studied genetic trait, there they think now that with the current GWASs they have done, they have saturated their study. So they kind of, they have reached the maximum that they could identify almost. So there they think, okay, what we have identified so far, this is where we, this is probably the maximum that we can identify for this trait. And then they consider that kind of the genetic component. But it was not as high as originally thought. So it, it went down based on that. But now the genetics says, if you have enough power, which is a very important point, then you can potentially make the argument that you think you are saturating the genetic component or you're close to the saturation limit. But um, for longevity, it's still the question because, and lifespan as well, kind of, because we don't know how close we are to the threshold, because also we are very underpowered in, in how many individuals we can study in comparison to, for example, height, where it's millions of people that are in the current uh, large genetic association studies. There are so many interesting open questions in the field of genetics. Another thing that I read um, was recently, apparently the heritability of age-related diseases is reasonably high, but then when you look at the heritability of longevity, it's much lower. Any idea why? Well, this is this could be because we look really at at uh, at lifespan, or I would say at, at in the case of longevity, it's probably even different. But it could be because 
yes, diseases have a strong genetic component. It doesn't mean that if, it's, if, it, if there's a strong genetic component on one thing, it also has to be a strong genetic component on an other related thing. So I think there are definitely, it's a strong genetic component of diseases. And these diseases also influence the outcome survival in this case, or, or lifespan. But it doesn't have to mean that then lifespan itself also needs to have a, a high, um, a, a big genetic component. And the reason is th for that is that some of these diseases might be very specific. So they have a large genetic component where specific variants contribute to that disease. And that disease can contribute to lifespan, but not always. It could still be that people um, have that disease and don't die of it, for example. So it, it it's, it's really different traits that are hard to compare. And I think the reason that, that the heritability of, of lifespan is probably much, uh, much lower is that there are so many ways that can influence how long you live, it's genetically and non-genetically, that therefore the genetic component becomes lower. If you, you can have the perfect genetic setup, but if you then eat something wrong, um, you get a specific accident, then you can still die early. So, and with some of the diseases, it's more, more sad that if you have a certain genetic background, you will develop that disease. So then it's more genetically driven than environmentally driven. Yet, and also be aware, in many cases, it might still be that it's also there, the genetic component is still an overestimation. Given that it's much bigger than for lifespan, I think it will never get as low as lifespan, but still it might, in some cases, still be an overestimation of what the actual genetic component of the disease is. So maybe let's talk about the drivers of lifespan. What genetic variants have we identified with, with some confidence? Well, if you really talk about strong confidence, it's, I would say, only two variants. Um, well, actually, two loci. So we have APOE, the APOE locus, which is, if you take, and a locus is considered a, a larger region in the genome. And if you take the APOE locus, we have there two variants that show very consistent, strong effects across studies. You have the APOE4 allele. Um, so there's a specific genetic variant that encodes this APOE4 allele, which is depleted in long-lived people. So they have a lower frequency. Still, some people have it, but just at a lower frequency. And on the other hand, we have the APOE2 allele, which is another specific variant that encodes for that, which is actually enriched in long-lived people. Um, and next to that, next to APOE, we still have FOXO3, which shows quite some evidence by now, mostly at the beginning coming from this candidatine studies. So these are studies which just focused on one SNP or one gene and only the SNPs in that gene to look how they are associated with longevity, then they found quite some evidence for FOXO3. But we always had trouble and we still are having trouble, I would say, detecting it in the bigger genetic association studies. This is likely, again, a power issue and also because the type of statistics we use. But I think based on all these candidate gene studies and the evidence from that and also the some evidence we have now from the larger genetic association studies, I would say that the variation in FOXO3 um, is also trustable. The rest of the things that have been identified cannot be replicated between studies. It doesn't mean that they are not true. It can still be that they are true, but only for specific populations. It's just that if we look at all these populations combined, we will not pick them up. Yeah, that sounds somewhat depressing that we have only uncovered two high confidence variants, really. 
it's 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 also a bit depressing. When I started my PhD, um, which was in two thousand eight, I that was the goal, right? To 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 dive into it. We then started with the bigger genetic association studies. The idea would be, oh, I'm gonna dive into it, identify variants, and then ideally follow these variants up in the lab and see how they work. But yeah, we are now fifteen years ahead, and we still only have. APOE coming from the really the large genetic association studies and then FOXO. So yes, it's quite depressing. It's also quite interesting to see this because there are not many traits where you have, if you look at the so-called Manhattan plot, which is when you plot all the genetic variants across the genome, where you have such one strong peak and nothing else. It's something that you often see with a monogenetic disease or a monogenetic trait, but we don't think that that longevity is a monogenetic trait, but it's still very interesting that the effect of Fox, oh, sorry, of APOE is so strong, while there seems to be nothing else at least confidently associating. It's it's an interesting observation. Indeed, and it's called a Manhattan plot because it resembles a skyline, I guess. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and in the case of. It should it should look like that. So it should be peaks all over the place. But then longevity, it's just one a twin tower kind of that's standing there. It's uh, it's a bit sad. Right for Apple, it's like the skyline of Dubai, I guess, or something like that. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And we will dig deeper into this in a moment. But before that, um, there's something interesting you mentioned. Uh, since not everyone will be aware about how the genome is structured and genomics. You mentioned that we're dealing with a with a locus where you have a certain variant, right? So as far as I remember, not all variants will be in the actual protein coding sequence. Can you explain this a bit in more detail? Yeah, that's correct. So actually, when we look at these larger genetic association studies, and in this case, actually also in FOXO, the variants that we identified are not, uh, most of the time, not protein altering. So in general, if you identify variants with genetic association studies, they are often not in the coding region. So they're often outside of coding region. So they could be in regulatory elements, they could be in the introns, but actually very often they are not regular direct um, protein altering variants. In the case of APOE, that's different, of course, because the two variants that we identify in APOE, they are protein altering directly. So for those, we know I, what they do kind of with the protein. For FOXO, for a long time, it wasn't known what the variant, the main, the, 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 the most strong variant was doing. But there has been now some follow-up work on that. And there's also a publication where they actually show that this variant is indeed intronic, but they have some evidence how it would regulate FOXO and all the downstream effects. So, but yeah, in most cases, actually, we just detect variants that are outside of the coding region of a gene. What is the reason for this? Is this because if they were altering the coding sequence, there would be probably rare variants with high impact and it, we wouldn't be detecting them? Or how, how does this look? Yeah, that, there could be different reasons for that. This is one reason that it could be that, that we, we still think that there are protein altering variants that are relevant for certain phenotypes, but indeed they would likely be more rare because they could, or they are not existing because the effects are too strong, right? Sometimes you might want to influence a, a, a certain gene or Different, different genes in the region only mildly. And that you can do via uh, effects via regulatory elements. But if it would be protein coding and really di directly mutate the protein in a way that it would not work anymore, these effects would probably be too strong. So 
they can still be present in the population, but likely those are present in indeed a lower um, number of people. And that's why they are not detectable as so-called common variants. There are still some detectable. So for some traits, you can still, if you do GWAS, as you detect some protein altering variants or people detect um, non-protein altering variants, but then look at the structure in the locus and actually figure out that the variant they identify is inherited together with a protein altering variant and that that protein altering variant is actually the variant that is the relevant variant. This is especially in the beginning when it was also with APOE, for example, that we actually identified another variant, which was in, in, in this gene called TOM40. But then we realized later that that variant is often inherited together with the APOE variant. And actually the APOE variant is likely the variant that is the causal variant, while this other variant is might still have a function. We don't, we don't actually know how much of a function it has, but it's likely popping up because it was inherited together with APOE and we didn't measure APOE ourself, itself. So that's, that's what you often see with things that were identified in the earlier stages that they identified variants that in the end turned out to be in so-called linkage, so linked with other variants that are actually regulatory. That's amazing. The genome is a vast ocean and it's easy to get lost in it. And now, and now especially now with where we can study these 30 million variants at once because of these ways that we can measure, say, around 500,000 and then predict the rest of the genome based on these variants so that you can now analyze 30, 40 million variants at once. And these are, yeah, we, we detect new things there, but it's always very difficult to go from the variant to the function. This is also something we can discuss if you want. But finding the variants is one thing, proving that they are actually influencing the phenotype and how they would be doing it is another thing. So many times it's people identify things and it's for a long time unclear how these variants would actually influence the phenotypes phenotype of interest. Right. I'd actually love to talk about a little bit about APOE and what it does. But before that, a uh, brief question, since you were mentioning something about high impact effect sizes and etc. How many years can we estimate would one gain from having an APOE or FOX or genotype that is beneficial? It's only a little, little amount. Probably, I think, what we do estimate, I think two two years or something for APOE when you look at parental lifespan. I mean, for longevity, we never estimated it in that way. We just say you have an increased or decreased probability, which is an odd ratio of not even two often. So it's 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 not even big effects. Um, and this is also what you often see with these variants that are um, more common, so more common in the population that often then goes hand in hand with a lower um odds ratio or effect size than variants that are maybe a bit more rare. Because if you look, for example, at APOE4, the frequency of the of the bad allele, percentage-wise, it's it's around half um, present in the long-lived people. But still, it's something about 5 to 7% of the long-lived people, I say on top of my head, that still carry this variant. They are not having the disease, but they carry it. So... If you then look at the frequency difference and and the calculated the odds ratio, it's it's not even two, so it's small, but it's definitely very consistent. So we know it's very like well, it's 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 the most 
clear variant where we where we believe it's actually true, but still the effects are very small. So it doesn't explain much of the uh, effects of long of genetics on longevity. So APO is consistent and relatively well studied. But do we know what it does already? Do we have any idea? So we think that the effect, so APOE was uh, already identified in 1994 to be associated with longevity and also at the, around the same time or later to be associated with cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's disease. So we think the effects of APOE on longevity of E4 and E2 are because they have an effect on Alzheimer's disease and cardiovascular disease. So there's still quite some studies ongoing in how that would work. For example, people are looking into the brain to figure out how it would work for Alzheimer's disease. But one thing it's, that's clear is that APOE is a lipid carrier. And what they know is if you have the APOE4 allele or APOE3, which is the, the normal allele or the APOE2, it influences the binding to cholesterol. So that effect might be one of the reasons that you have better binding, worse binding, and in that way of cholesterol, and that could have an effect on the in the end on the phenotype. However, all these studies or most of these studies are done in humans, and in humans you can only do limited things. And the problem with APOE is that it's not these variants are not conserved in lower organisms that we normally study, um, like mice, or let alone flies or 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 worms. So it's very hard to, to dive really deep into how APOE is actually exerting its function or actually more important, how these variants of APOE are exerting this fu their function, except that we can do some studies in humans or in, in cellular models, but it's very hard to show in vivo causal effects because we cannot um, study it very well in, in model organisms. Is this true for other variants as well? And do you have an approach? Like, I know you're starting to work with model organisms, trying to translate it back into the model organism, what you find in humans, right? Yeah, so so indeed my approach in my group now is that we really focus on this rare variants, which you might be talk about later, but the variants that are very specific for, for or long-lived people and that are conserved. So I focus actually now on purpose, but this was not even on purpose, but we... When we identified these variants and looked if they were conserved, many were actually conserved, so we could follow them up. This is also because of, of how we filter them, because they had to be protein altering, and it had to be very likely that they do something to the functioning of the protein. And these kind of variants are often also more conserved than variants that are um, not doing these kind of things. So the variants that I'm studying are actually conserved, and that's also very nice because we can bring them into the model organisms. With conserved, in this case, we mean that the amino acid that is in, uh, implicated is conserved. So we can also make the same amino acid chains in, in the model organisms. It's not always that the exact variant is conserved, right? So the exact single nucleotide polymorphism, sometimes it is, but sometimes it's also just, we just look at if the amino acid is conserved and if we make the same amino acid um, change as we have in the humans, that then we hope that it will do the same trick. Yeah, the study of rare variants is definitely very helpful to, to find new interesting variants and solve the problems we have a bit in genetics of aging. And maybe this is the point where I can rephrase why, why it is so important, um, what you do and the whole field. So 
maybe if we go back to be the beginnings, we know that um, aging is multifactorial. It's, of course, influenced by multiple genes. But there was a bit of a debate many decades ago whether we can even slow aging at all. And some people thought it's not possible to slow at all because it's so complex. But then came important studies in the 19s showing that single gene mutations in mice and invertebrates were able to slow aging. And later we got drugs. And this works very well. In mice, we have very well validated like monogenic mutations, right, that affect aging. But we lack this for humans. And I'm not sure how, how worried I should be, right, for us. We, we actually want to slow aging in humans, right? Yes, yes, that's the ideal, um, ideal thing, right, that we, have, that we live longer for healthier. I think there, there are different reasons why we do not detect these things. First of all, like I said, the approaches that we are using are often based on this common variant. So these variants that are present in the population at a quite uh, reasonable frequency. And I don't expect that these mutations that have such massive effects, like you would see in, in the C. elegans, would actually be high pref highly prevalent in humans. So if we want to detect such variants, we likely need to focus on the rare variants to find them. Second, we as, as a human species, are very well studied. We can, we can, in principle, get the genetics of everybody in the world. So it might be that we, from a normal genetic point of view, this already very long-lived people are already, in a way, optimized maximally um, to, to what we can do. In mice, of course, we just start with one mouse strain we mute, or, or a worm strain. We mutate that worm strain, and then we see. But we don't know if that worm with that mutation would actually also be there already naturally in the wild because we haven't we haven't looked at every every animal in the wild with humans of course this is different because like i said we can get a lot of information about this so it might be that from a genetic point of view we have already reached this maximum there are some people that have reached it because of genetic mutations we don't know it might also still be that we can still extend it but this is a question that 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 we that we are not sure about. And another thing which I think is making survival and longevity in humans way more complex is that there are so many ways in which you can um, influence all these pathways. And we have evolved in a way that we have many different mechanisms that were much simpler in model organisms. That in the model organisms you just target one thing, and that mechanisms will be influenced. In humans, it's it's more delicate, so it might be that we need really more fine tuning uh, of the of the pathways, and that can be done maybe by one variant if we are lucky. But I actually think that in many of these long-lived people, it's not just one variant that explains why they live so long. It's this combination of different variants that all fine tune certain aspects uh, of their health that, in combination, likely um, improve their longevity. But detecting those is, I would say at the moment, virtually impossible because it's it's very hard to determine which variants would do that, which combination of variants would do that. So this makes this study so hard um, that, first of all, we don't have that many very long-lived people from which we have genetic data. And second, if we expect that it's mostly these rare variants, ideally working in combinations, it makes it super difficult. So I think we should focus more on the rare variants because I think there's, there's more to gain there than what we have in the common variants. But even there, the question is how far can we come before we would have to actually look at 
different kind of combinations and then where to look because if you look at how many rare variants a person carries which can even be deleterious variants very strong variants it will be a couple of hundreds if not maybe a thousands so how to filter the right ones this is this is a real challenge so our, our field is in that sense yeah we have a bit of bad luck i would say that it's so diverse on the other hand, it might also show us that there are many different ways that we can fine-tune to improve our health um, and that it's just not one mechanism that we have to target. It might be by influencing different mechanisms, we might reach the same end goal. Yeah, ultimately, that will be a very important question whether if it takes, let's say, dozens or hundreds of variants to affect aging, does this also mean you would need dozens or hundreds of drugs to affect aging and then it will become infeasible in humans? Or maybe that's not how it translates. Like we, we still have to see how this will turn out. Yeah, and, and, and related to that, what I also think, and this is also kind of how, how my research is focused, that the variants can be different, but the outcome might be the same, right? So what we also see in, in model organisms, there are different drugs, different kind of genetic interventions that all lead to the same downstream effect. That might also be the case in humans that, there are different ways in which people reach the same downstream effect. They will not carry the same variant, but they might carry another variant, but the outcome of carrying this variant is, is the same. So from a genetic point of view, this is very hard to study. But if you can find different genetic variants that have the same downstream effect, which is what I'm hoping for, we can identify, then you can at least say, okay, this mechanism is the thing that we should target. We shouldn't make this exact same mutations that's not necessary but if we can mimic the downstream mechanism then we can already get further than than uh, than we currently can in humans so maybe let's translate it into some sort of pseudo i don't know example you could have let's say 10 different mutations in the mTOR pathway that would be different between humans but you could still target the same pathway with one drug successfully in theory right Exactly. Yeah. But what, what is a bit the tricky part here is, of course, what we do often in, in model organisms is that these drugs that we give or the genetic mutations are super strong, right? So we completely knock down a pathway or are very strongly downregulated or overexpress it. I expect that the effects in humans are probably a bit more mild. I don't expect that we would, I mean, in theory, there could be people walking around that have a, a mutation in mTOR that completely get, leads to a loss of function. Very realistically, those people probably already died quite early. So this very um, vital genes, I would say, like mTOR, we are not expecting to identify many mutations in those because they are too important. What we actually expect is that we find more mutations in things that can slightly regulated, slightly upregulate, slightly downregulate, and that might be leading to the beneficial effect in humans. And and I'm not sure if we would see the same effect if we would do it as strongly as we would are currently still doing in, in model organisms. And of course then you can also identify things easy more easily, but it's less likely that it works the same way from a natural point of view, I would say here, in humans. Although, to be fair, some rare variants do have very severe consequences, usually negative ones, but potentially positive ones. And maybe I can give an example which, with some optimism, could be considered a rare 
longevity variant, right? So there are these mutations which lead to um, reduced either growth hormone signaling or resistance to growth hormone, like leading especially Laurent syndrome has been studied and people think it might protect from cancer, but it also has some side effects and it's still controversial whether people with this live longer, right? But it it's an interesting thing. Yes, exactly. And and, and so it might indeed be that there are people that have just one mutation that make them age very healthily and, 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 and good. But what you also see, you already mentioned it yourself, these people probably have side effects. And this is the thing what's often is seen if these mutations are too severe. They can have benefits, but they often also have side effects that you would not like to have, right? So then in the end, the question is indeed if these people live longer. It might be that from a genetic point of view, they are better off and could live longer, but then still, because the environment plays such an important role, you might not be able to see it. This is another issue that we are currently facing, that there might be people carrying very healthy variants, and they might, like I said, genetically be optimal, but since they are faced with environmental factors, they still don't reach this very old age. And on the other hand, there might be people, which we also think is the case, that become very long-lived, just because of an optimized environment, which has nothing to do with their genetics. And these people are still in our genetic studies and they they trouble kind of our, our view of, of, of the genetics of longevity because they just became long-lived because of their environment and they have nothing in their genetics. And we really, so this is a thing that we want to really focus on to really find these people where there is a strong genetic component and purely focus on those so that we get rid of the the people that get got very long-lived just by luck, which is anyway still a very interesting thing for us because we can also learn from those people kind of how to optimize our environment. But I'm mostly interested to see, okay, what's the ideal genetic makeup um, to do the same trick? Yeah, it's good that you mentioned the interaction with environment. So I have to bring up a brief story. So I was talking to Rich Miller and he told me that the dwarf hormone mutations found in mice were originally, some people even thought they're pro-aging because the mice were shorter lived, right? Because they were not kept under conditions that would help them reach their potential. And when they are held under the right conditions, they live much longer than normal mice. That's fascinating. Yeah, this is also so something that, that we also think is happening in humans. Take, for example, the, the blue zones in the world. So these places where you have a kind of enrichment of very long-lived people, that's probably a combination of the genetics and the environment. So these people have optimized their genetics because they have lived in these isolated populations for a long time. So their genetics are kind of optimized to the environment that they are living. And they live in a healthy environment, we know, at least, in the earlier days, nowadays is different. So we know we can learn that from them, from the environmental part, but it's also probably likely that their genetics play a role in combination with this environment. Because if you take other people and put them in that environment, they will not live as long. If you take these people out of this environment, they're also not living as long. So it's really this combination of your genetics with your environment. And this makes it also so difficult that when we do this large genetic association studies where we take everybody across the world, it might be that certain variants only will work in certain populations in very isolated uh, conditions. And if you then look across the world, these conditions are, are 
different between different places. So that's why we don't detect them to be beneficial in all populations. And that's why they don't pop up in the larger studies. But it might be still be good in that specific environment to have a specific mutation adapted to that environment. But again, we are so underpowered in these kind of studies and it makes it so difficult to, to, to pinpoint which variant in which environment would work, which complicated genetics even more. That it's not only genetics, but it's actually the genetics in the right environment. So no one has tried to correct for environmental variables, let's say smoking status, even in the large studies like UK Biobank in the general population? Well, you can adjust for smoking status, but this is just a, a minor thing. I think mm -hmm. it's it's more in in how they react to certain foods, for example, or uh, how yeah how they process certain foods, how how the air is in general. Of course, there are some of these things like drinking, smoking. Yes, they will influence it, but I think it's it's mostly other types of environmental factors where it's more maybe diet related. But again, it's very hard to also adjust for it because. You need to find out first which environmental factor might be the, the thing that you need to adjust for. And then you need to see if, if it's measured in the same way in all these populations so that you can adjust for it. So it complicates things even more. But we know that, that for example, also with APOE, it's negative in most cases. But you can, of course, already adjust your diet in a way that, for example, you make sure that you do not eat too much cholesterol. And that leads to the effect of the APOE allele being much less strong than in a person that continuously eats cholesterol and their, their body needs to, to deal with that. And if they have a wrong APOE4 allele, this is detrimental. Many of the things that people advise people nowadays that have an APOE allele, would any baby be a good advice? In the sense that I would never eat too much cholesterol, for example. But there, there are people also working on that and say, okay, if you have certain variants, then just don't do certain things because then it will also prevent the variant from exerting its negative function. And it could also be the case for APOE. But as you say, uncovering this is difficult for a sample size reason and statistical reasons, right? Mostly. Mostly it's, it's that's, I mean, we, the statistical limitations are. The, the biggest this is kind of i would say the, the the biggest challenge we are facing that we just do not have large enough numbers to be able to do um, analysis like also gene gene or gene environment uh, interactions we just are completely underpowered at the moment right and that's actually a very interesting topic so uh, maybe we can briefly return to our beautiful Manhattan plots and the idea of genome-wide significance, right? What is this and how is it limiting us and what does it mean? So it means that, so when, when the original study started, they looked in principle how many independent locations are in the genome that are in, inherited independently for, uh, from each other. They came to this magical number of 1 million. Um, if you divide... And then the number 0 0.05, which is the, the magical threshold of where we always want to look for a p-value, it should be lower than 0 0.05, divided by 1 million, then you come to this threshold of 5 times 10 to the minus 8, which is considered the genome-wide significant threshold. So even although we now test way more SNPs, we test 40 million, so way more than this 1 million, we still keep that threshold. But that threshold is very stringent, of course. But 
The thing is, when you do statistics and you do such a large number of tests, you need to adjust for it. Otherwise, there might be more false positives. It's very likely the case that there are some of these signals hidden below this threshold that are still true. But because we we cannot say which ones are true or which one is which are untrue, it's very hard to say, okay, we just lower the level and then we say, okay, we, we believe everything at a lower level. So sometimes we for say the Foxo trees uh, allele is actually or the Foxo tree variance is a nice example there that when you do it in GWAS, it, it has a significance of something like 10 to the minus five, 10 to the minus six. So it's not at this genome-wide significant level, but given all the evidence that we have from all these other studies, we still think it's probably a true variant. But if we then look at all variants that have that significance, there's still some false positives there. So this makes it very complicated to, and that's why we are so stringent. We really want to focus on the things where we, from a statistical point of view, have strong evidence. It doesn't mean that things that are below that level are all not true. But there will be some things there that just by chance occurred because we do so many different tests. Yeah, FOXO3A is also a very strange and interesting uh, variant. So the good thing about FOXO is in a way that it is part of the growth hormone signaling pathway. It's a transcription factor that is sort of downstream so that at least parallels some of the data we see in animals. That's the that's good thing. The bad thing is that, as you said, it's not usually significant in the population studies at genome-wide significance levels. Yes, and and that, and that, but I think actually that is probably a power issue. So I think it's just true. It's just that we don't have sufficient power then to detect it. And um, but it has been replicated across so many populations by now that I definitely think that that it's a, a true variant and there's something happening there. And the nice thing is, of course, that it's a variant that is enriched again in the long-lived people. So that means that it's it's potentially promoting longevity, I would say. So briefly, what kind of sample sizes are we dealing with in centenarian studies and the population-wide studies? So uh, what what do you mean in that sense? Because if, in, the, in the case that if we do the comparison case control, we, we, we use this 10% longest lift. So this includes people often above 90, uh, and also, of course, centenarians, we get to sample size around 12,000 long-lived people. If we lower that to 1%, so the 1% longest lift, then you are left with around 3,000. Um, yeah, but, but for height, for example, you can take everybody. So then everybody that has genetic data and height, which is one of the phenotypes people always measure, um, then you can get to millions of of people but in our case we yeah the number of long-lived people with genetic data genome-wide genetic data is not so big so i think if we with this one percent if we would now really include everybody and everybody would contribute that has data we might be able to get at the moment maybe five six thousand max but probably we don't even reach that and then the power is still probably not sufficient we really need to have way bigger numbers. And even then it's the question if you would find it or if it's still more in the rare genetic variants than in the common genetic variants. So maybe here that that's actually very interesting. 
Um, maybe you can briefly go into the tricks that you use to solve this problem. So one thing is to look at these people above 90 and where you have small sample sizes. But I think another is you can you look at the general population and then look at their parents' lifespan and then kind of try recon reconstructing something from that. Yeah, so there is this other. Uh, the, 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 there were some other groups in the field that indeed focused on that. So what they did is indeed they knew the age of the parents of the of the individuals they have in the study. In this case, is from the UK Biobank, which is a massive population study with more than four hundred thousand people. And then based on the age of the parents, they did then the GWAS. So they kind of did a GWAS for how long your mother or how long your father lived. And this seems to be a quite good proxy of how long these people themselves live. But they only did this as a continuous trait, right? So they, they looked at it across all different ages. They didn't take the 1% the or 10% longest lift and controls. They really did it across all the ages. And then indeed they find uh, also more than what we find with longevity. But then if you look at what these variants are, they often as expected, disease-related variants. So these are variants that were already found for cardiovascular disease. Uh, their major hit that they had initially was a hit for smoking. So they knew that if you um, if you have that variant, you have an increased risk of, of, of that you're smoking. Um, and that leads, of course, to earlier death. So many of these variants were actually then found to be disease-associated variants. But it's, an, it's another trick indeed to, to come up with the numbers that we can do this analysis. Ideally, we would like to do this with the data of the individuals themselves. So ideally, we would have these individuals wait till they die and then do genetics on, on this whole cohort of all the individuals where you know their age of death. But that's these kind of cohorts are, are not big enough yet so that we can do that. So that's why they went for this parental lifespan. And it was a, a nice trick. And I think it showed definitely some 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 interesting findings but if we then looked from these things that they identify what they do directly in longevity most of these things do not do anything in the sense that they don't even reach this p-value of 0.05 so without correcting for all these other things many of them do not show something in longevity and if they show something it was also only a very minor effect i would say so that it helped us a bit in thinking about, okay, maybe we should use different approaches. And that's what they also did by combining then longevity with this trait and with health span. Um, but they cannot be used at a, as a perfect proxy for longevity. That's very interesting. So this raises some very interesting questions. I'm just thinking maybe we can briefly stick with statistics before we talk about some of the papers you published. So you mentioned we have a problem with sample size and with statistics and a lot of the variants don't reach significance. Now, I think there are some approaches like two I know to kind of um, solve this. So one is to some extent, I think Mendelian randomization, right? You can use multiple variants to predict some sort of continuous trade and then none of them technically has to reach significance. What do you think about this approach? Yeah, so how this approach works is, is, is you take an outcome of interest and you take an exposure of interest. So say that your exposure is um, cardiovascular disease, your outcome is, is longevity or lifespan. So what you then do is you look, you take the variants that are associated with your exposure and then you look in combination how they associate with your outcome. And if they do 
And if it's, then you can say, okay, it's very likely that this, it's used to say, okay, my outcome is very likely related to, uh, sorry, my exposure is very likely related to my outcome. So a simple example would be, you're interested in the effect of smoking on cardiovascular disease, and you want to know if this is really a causal effect, where you can say, okay, it's really that smoking is the reason that this, these people get cardiovascular disease. What you then do is you take the genetic variants simply set associated with smoking, look what they do for cardiovascular disease. And if they can indeed kind of do something there, then you can say, okay, these variants influence very likely cardiovascular disease via smoking. So people use Mendelian randomization most often to say, to look for causal factors influencing an outcome of interest. So if we now take longevity, many people are interested in to see, okay, which traits influence longevity. So they start doing Mendelian randomization based on different diseases with longevity as the outcome. And then sometimes you indeed detect things because the SNPs they focus on don't have to be genome-wide significant in the longevity outcome. It just needs to be that they need in combination kind of to show that they do something with the outcome. So in that way, you can definitely pinpoint more um, exposures that are important for the outcome. So we can, in that way, people have done it, shown that cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease are very likely related to, um, um, to the outcome longevity. You can also you can do that from a Medellin randomization approach. You can also make the so-called polygenic scores. Um, so previously, people also called them polygenic risk scores. So what you then do is you take the variants associated with a trait, you count them up, kind of, taking into account how much they contribute to the trait, and then you get a score based on the genetics contributing to a trait, and then you can test that score for your outcome, which would be in this case longevity. And then what you can and what you clearly see there is that also many of these polygenic scores, um, people try to see if they were enriched in this long-lived people. And some seem to be like a polygenic score for Alzheimer's disease is likely depleted in long-lived individuals. And there's also one study that showed it for multiple of these scores. But it's not always the case. So it's not always that these people have a depletion of risk scores for diseases. So actually, they, they have the similar number of disease variants as the people in the, in the normal population, but they probably have something that protects them against the effect of these variants. So these are two, two ways that people nowadays use, use genetics to still study longevity without having to deal with the fact that things are not genome-wide significant. A third approach, which you also use, which is, I would say, kind of similar to the polygenic risk score, is that you just look at the so-called genetic correlation. So you take all your genetic variants across the genome, see how they associate with one trait, see the, how, they, how they associate with another trait, and based on that, you can calculate the correlation between the two traits. So that's what, what we also have done, and then you can also see that there's, for example, a, a big Ne negative genetic correlation between many diseases and longevity as the outcome, most strongly cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's again. So to, to put it simple, these are other ways to show that it's very likely that there are traits contributing to longevity from a genetic point of view without having to actually show their significance with longevity itself of the single variant.
That's actually an approach that I wasn't very familiar with. That's pretty cool that they can do a polygenic risk score for disease and then see whether it's depleted or not in longevity. I was more familiar with Mendelian randomization. Like there are some beautiful studies recently published showing that genetically predicted, for example, iron levels are associated with longevity, right? And I think you also worked a bit on iron and heme metabolism. Um, do you want to go into a bit more detail? Yeah, so so this was actually a, a finding uh, that we didn't expect. It was so what we did. So we we actually started to combine these three traits uh, that I I I, I uh, mentioned before. So we have the parental lifespan. We have also something called a GWAS for health span, which is the which is taken as the time before the occurrence of the first chronic disease. So they do a, did a genetic study on that, and then we had the longevity GWAS. So we had these three data sets, and we first looked how genetically correlated are these three traits with each other? So we wanted to know, can they actually be combined? And then we saw that there was definitely a quite big genetic correlation, something like 0.5 on a scale from zero to one, depending on which traits you compare, but at least 0.5. So then we decided, okay, we combine these three traits together and then do one analysis based on all this data together. So that's what we did. Um, and then we found several new hits that were only popping up for this specific trait that were not being that were not observed if you would look at each trait um, by itself, and there were actually in then um, ten genetic variants where we could see that they associate with the the trait the combined trait at a genome wide significant level, but also with each single trait at a nominal significant level, which means zero point zero five. So to overcome again this issue with the uh, with the power. So when we then looked at those 10 genetic variants, we looked, okay, what do these variants do? What kind of expression do they influence? And then you can do the so-called EQTL analysis, um, expression quantitative trait loci analysis, where you can see if a variant increases or decreases the expression of a certain gene in the genome. And you can do that genome-wide, which is what we did, based on blood. Um, because blood is the most studied tissue there. You can also do it on other tissues, but most data is there on blood. So we then did that, and then we found a list of genes that were influenced by these genetic variants, uh, where the expression was influenced by these genetic variants. And then we did a, a so-called pathway analysis just to figure out what is, is there any pathway enriched uh, in this gene set? And then we came to heme metabolism. And then we were quite surprised to find that, but it was very strong, a strong uh, enrichment, I would say. So then we thought, okay, now we have some evidence that that's likely the case. What can we do next? And then actually the, the first author of the paper, Paul Timmers, he came up with the idea, let's use Mendelian randomization, actually. So what we then did is that we have take longevity as the outcome. Um, we take the heme metabolism kind of the, the factors for heme metabolism as the exposure, and then we see if it works. And that actually turned out to work, that we actually, when we take the variants associated with factors related to heme metabolism, they also seem to associate with mortality, uh, with longevity, and also with parental lifespan and with health span. So that gave us some more confidence that it's likely that there is a genetic effect influencing longevity, doing that likely via heme metabolism. But this is just all bioinformatic approaches. So we, we don't know yet how that would actually work. We don't have any mechanistic evidence yet. 
how these variants would do that. It's just a bioinformatic approach in finding what kind of factors could influence uh, longevity. And then we came up with hemetabolism. And then I think other people also repeated that later on where they where they did it again on longevity. But this is kind of already what we did in our original paper. So we, we think there's something there. How it mechanistically works, we, we are not sure yet. Yeah, it's a beautiful story and a very cool paper. I think it's it's definitely a surprising finding. For me, it's something that I hoped to see because I researched um, a bit of iron and aging. So I was hoping there would be connections in the human data and I'm pleased to see them. And actually, it's very interesting um, that there is also a heme connection. There is very cool comparative data between species uh, published by the Gladyshev lab. Um, Fushan 2015, so where, this is a transcriptomic study, right? So they s wanted to see which uh, transcripts are changed in longer-lived species. And some two of the top hits were actually haptoglobin and hemopexin, so involved in uh, managing heme or hemolysis and, and like heme homeostasis, right, in the body. So maybe there is somewhere a connection, but it's it's fascinating. Yeah, I think, I mean, what I always tell people is, now to the people working in models, now you have a pathway, follow it up and, and, and see how it mechanistically would work. Because we have now, this is one of the few things, like I said, we, we found in humans that might be contributing to longevity, which is actually uh, something that we can follow up in humans, right? In, in model organisms. With, with APOE, like I said, we, we run into this problem that these variants are not conserved. But in this case, we come up with a mechanism or pathway, and at the pathway level, it's often much easier also to to follow it up. So I think definitely, I'm 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 really hoping that people continue with this and can actually make mechanistic sense out of what we find. I mean, this is not something I'm currently doing, but I, I hope people will do that and 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 will try to figure out how mechanistically it works and if there's maybe a way that we can play around with our iron metabolism so that, that we can uh, extend our health span and potentially even our lifespan. Yes. So briefly, based on this, it would seem that lower iron is better. Is this correct? Yes, we see an inverse. Um, well, yeah, the, it, it, we see an inverse correlation. Yeah. But it's, again, we are looking here at very mild effects, right? So we don't expect that you need to, because we know both a very low iron and a very high iron are both detrimental. Both are not good. So it's it's more kind of somewhere in the middle range and then slightly lower might be beneficial, but we have to see uh, how that would exactly work. So this is again, something that should also be taken into account when you go into the models that you shouldn't completely block it or overexpress it. Probably we need maybe a mild um, effect to potentially show something. Yes, and the human data on iron and longevity is very complex. And as you say, there is the problem that on the one side you have anemia, on the other you have iron overload. Exactly. And that is actually what, that's, that's actually what we expect with many of these things, right? Also, if you look at longevity pathways, like it, it can go in either direction, but if you go too much, it's always becoming detrimental. So you need to kind of find this this balance somewhere in between the optimal window, I would say, where where the where probably the interventions would work. And many cases, a complete shutdown or a massive overexpression is is too much, definitely in humans. 
So now that you mention this, I have to ask briefly. I'm not sure if you're able to answer because it's just something that occurred to me. So in epidemiologic studies, we often have U-shaped or J-shaped response curves. As you say, too much or too little can be harmful. But when we do Mendelian randomization, is there any way, do we always presuppose a linear correlation? Is there any way to kind of arrive at a similar thing using Mendelian randomization? That's a good question. I don't know. I think normally it assumes a linear correlation. I think many of the, anyway, many of the analysis we're doing, which is another limitation, hmm. are based on linear correlations or linear effects or additive effects um, in, in GWASs, for example. So I, I think normally it's, it's assuming linear relationship. It might be able to, to play around with it, but I don't have the knowledge um, on this how to do that or if it's possible. But it should in theory be possible to come up with ways of doing that. Yeah. So that was one of your projects. Um, what else are you working on that is exciting? Well, the main thing I'm, I'm very excited about is indeed this, this, this rare variants that we are following up, right? So like I said, I come from the, from the large genetic association studies, always with the goal to go back to the model organisms to, to see how we can then see in the model organisms how things work, bring it back to the humans again. This has always been my goal since the start of my PhD. Then with the common variants, it didn't really work out. I mean, with APOE, it is already widely studied. Like I said, it's hard to study in models. So I'm not going into that direction. Foxo3 people already were doing. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to try another approach. And I just start again with the models. So I first thought, okay, which, well, that, that that's that's kind of in general knowledge by now, the most strong associated pathway in model organisms is insulin signaling. So I have the feeling there should be more in insulin signaling than just Foxo in humans. So like we discussed before, I have the idea that it's likely that it's different kind of variants which can lead to the same outcome um, more downstream. So I was then saying, okay, let's look at rare genetic variants in the ins involved in insulin signaling in very long-lived people that are very rare, that have not been seen before, actually. This is what we ended up with. So we really look at variants that we identified in long-lived people, most of them even in long-lived families, which means that there are multiple family members carrying this variant that are not seen in the general population. From a statistics point of view, this is very weak because, of course, you cannot show that there is any enrichment depletion if you have a zero versus one or versus a couple. So that, that is, of course, always a problem. That from a genetic point of view, it's, it's difficult. But the idea would be, okay, we take these variants, bring them into model organisms again, and I started with cells and now brought them into mice, and see if these different variants identified in, in different people can lead to similar downstream effects. And if that's the case, can we then target these specific mechanisms in a way that it mimics the human situation? And what we actually already seeing is that indeed, we do see some shared effects already between different genetic variants. And second, the effects that they have on the pathway are probably relatively mild. Like I was also explaining, I don't expect that there will be a complete shutdown of the pathway, like you have, for example, with rapamycin, but a bit more milder effects. And then the next step is, okay, how can we mimic that? So that would be the end goal for me, kind of finding then ways in which we can mimic the things that we find in humans. But I took this approach 
very risky, still very risky, especially with 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 the mouse uh, that we have created. But I thought I wanted to try it and see how it works out. And so far, actually, to my own surprise, um, it seems to work that we definitely detect variants that have functional effects, which is one thing, and um, that they potentially even do things in the mouse. If they lead to a longer lifespan, if they can be causally linked to also the longer lifespan in the humans, that will always be a difficult story. But if we can at least show that they have a functional effect and potentially do even something health or lifespan related in mice, we have more evidence that they can actually be variants that led to a small part of the longevity of the carriers. And we can use the same approach. So I, I'm, I created this pipeline and I'm working really on insulin signaling. But of course, you can use the same approach for other pathways coming from model organisms. And you cannot really do this unbiased. This is the problem. If you would do this unbiased, then you don't know where to start, right? Which variants should I focus on? So that's why I use the knowledge from the model organisms to go back to the humans. Of course, people will say, yes, insulin sickening, we all know. Um, there's already some evidence in humans, but this would be still bringing on new evidence that I think it's it's also a vital pathway in humans. Maybe it's, it's also the pathway in humans. We just haven't found the right ways of finding the genetic variants contributing to it. But there's a reason it works to manipulate this pathway in so many model organisms. So why would you expect that we as humans would not see it? We may have additional things that are not existing in model organisms, like more cholesterol metabolism things related to APOE, for example. But I think we should take the knowledge that comes from the model organisms and look in humans and other groups are doing similar approaches where they, for example, looked at this DNA repair genes and um, and, and sure to win six um, slightly different approach um, and they didn't uh, were not able to create mice, for example. But I think there is an opportunity there that we should take what we know from the model organisms, use it in humans. But then from the model organisms, we ideally get more strongly associated evolutionary conserved pathways like internet signaling that we can then also follow up. That's a good example. It just came to my mind as well because I was talking to Vera Gorbunova who does the work on the DNA repair enzyme SIRT6, right? So she's trying to also identify it in centenarians, whether there are variants. It's a beautiful idea. Yes, her approach is slightly different in the sense what they did is they just looked for variants that were potentially enriched in their long-lived people. In the end, it turned out that the sirtuin 6 variant is actually not enriched in long-lived people. So it means that there are still also people that are non-long-lived that carry it, which makes, of course, this more difficult, right? Because we're already focusing on rare variants. We need to be very careful that if it's seen in, in non-long-lived people, it can still be very functional, but it's harder to prove. I would say it's not, it, I would not say it's not associated with longevity, but it's harder to prove that. This is the reason that these people become long-lived because why this is people that did not become long-lived then also have it, right? This is always a tricky part. If you look at common variants, you can do it with a frequency difference. And then the frequency difference is big enough. You can say, okay, it, in most people, it does it. But like I said, there are still people that also carry a good variant that don't become long-lived. But what is nice about their work is that at least for these variants, they show also nice functional effects. So it, it shows that you can detect variants in long-lived people that are functional. And this is very important. We now need to find 
which variants are probably the most important for really their longevity. Would that be variants that are really unique to them or would that be variants that are potentially also observed in non-long-lived people that just by accident or by but because they were unlucky did not make it to this very long-lived uh, age? So just to be clear about the statistical black magic that you use here. So if you if you take this candidate gene approach sort, sort of, do you still look for those that reach genome-wide significance? No, you can work with a lower threshold, right? Well, you don't work actually. With, so I don't work with a threshold because they have been seen in, in, in only long-lived people and, and not in the general population. So you cannot do a statistical test. What you can do, which people already did, is when you take the combined genetic combined uh, genetic variation within incident signaling and only look at rare variants there, then in combination, it seems that they have an enrichment compared or depletion or difference between cases and controls. So then you can actually come up with statistical tests to test that, and it's so-called a burden analysis, where you see that they have more or less variants in the pathway compared to the general population. So there is evidence that in long-lived people, the insulin signaling rare genetic variation is likely um, different in comparison to the general population. But that's not at the single variant level where I'm looking at, because then the statistics will not hold. So they're so rare that they're not in those 30 million cataloged S&Ps? No. Okay. No. Very rare indeed. Yes, they are very rare. I mean, um, I mean, you have to see. I mean, we, we confirm all of them with independent techniques to be sure that they are not artifacts of the of the um, of the sequencing, but they seem to be real. And also, for example, for the familial ones, we have evidence that they are multiple family members, right? So it's it's then, of course, also not a random mutation that appeared. It seems to be something that is already there for at least two generations, and might contribute to the fact that these people live so long. It's still a long shot, right? Because it's one single variant contributing. I don't expect that that one single variant will be the explanation why these people are long-lived, but it might be a small part of the explanation why they become long-lived. So that's why if we see an effect, it would already be very interesting. Talking about rare, we use this word, but is there actually a well-defined difference between intermediate, rare, and ultra-rare variants? Yeah, this is really up to, um, to I would say, who defines it. But I would say common nowadays is considered something that is present in at least 1% of the population. Everything below that would be considered rare. Um, Ultra-rare can then be below 0.001%, for example, or 0.0001%. So the definition of rare versus ultra-rare is a bit, I would say, less defined. But I mean, if you talk about our variants, they are unique. So they, they you cannot even define them as ultra-rare because, I mean, they are so, they are so, they are unique to these people. But many people, if they talk about ultra-rare, they often focus on the ones that are say below 0.01% of the population. So they, they in the, in the same, in um, one in every, what would it be, 10,000 people. I see. Just something interesting that I wanted to mention briefly. So presumably there are variants which extend your lifespan. So there should also be variants that shorten your lifespan. They, they might be harder to study because it's hard to distinguish from specific causes of death. 
but like we have progerias that might be high impact single mutations that are shortening longevity and there might be something less extreme than that in principle right in principle yes yeah. so, so i mean this is this is the progeria syndromes are very often very monogenetic so it's very clear which gene plays a role also sometimes which variants and there it's very clear okay if you mutate these genes these people live short so in that sense we can use these kind of uh, syndromes to find out which variants indeed make you live short the question is always if it would now improve the functioning of those genes, would that make people live long? This is what we haven't found yet. I mean, we, we for example, do not see, say, Werner, this uh, WRN gene, which is very strong in, for, for progeria, which we don't see as one of the things that is that we see a lot of genetic variants improving its function in long-lived people, which could, again, be a power issue. We don't know, but... There, there's at the moment not evidence that it always works opposite, which makes it difficult because we have many ways, I would say, in which we can shorten our lifespan. Um, very well, nature has ways in which we can shorten our lifespan from a genetic point of view, but it's not said that if you work on the same genes that the opposite will happen, that then people will live longer. So we can use them to learn things about aging, but it's hard to use them to learn things about longevity. That's actually an interesting paradox, why it cannot be inverted. One can only speculate, right? Maybe they're already near optimal, those DNA repair enzymes, and it would be really hard to find a variant that improves them. I mean, this is, this is indeed also the, the, the problem a bit with the DNA repair field in the sense that it's very clear that if you mess up with your DNA repair, you live shorter. It's, it's much harder to prove that these very long-lived people have an improved or more stable DNA repair that prevents it from, um, from losing its function. This is always much more difficult to prove. It, I, it could definitely be true. It's just we don't have discovered yet that that's the case. But this is always very hard with, with this kind of things where you it's very clear that if you mess it up, you live shorter. It's often hard to prove that if you improve it, that you would actually live longer. Maybe we have already indeed, like you said, reached our optimum and if you can just maintain that optimum, you're already fine and you don't need to further improve it. I agree about the DNA repair field. That's one of the issues. Okay, so I have maybe two topics before I let you go. So one question is to make us feel special as humans. In a way, we are special compared to mice. Um, so how are we genetically different that it's hard to translate the mouse data? We already alluded to some of the things maybe we're already near optimal in some ways, which is why these pathways don't show up in the in the studies. But I'm wondering, is there also something about human heterogeneity and population structure specifically that makes it hard to replicate or find new variants? Yes, that's definitely also the case. What we also think is indeed, we come back again to this also gene environment interactions, right? Or that it might be that indeed special populations have specific variants that are good for them and you see that with different traits as well if you look at cardiovascular disease there are specific variants that only are present in the european population that are risk alleles while there are no risk alleles in 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 the african population on the asian population the other way around in those populations they might have again specific variants that are only in those populations detrimental but not in the european population so we as humans of course yeah, we, we have the same ancestor, but we are still very diverse. And that means that it's also really depending on 
how we within this specific regions evolved um, over the last thousand years, a couple of thousand years separated, right? You might, your genetic makeup might um, have evolved in a direction that's optimal for that specific environment. And that's not the same environment as where other people are living. So you have different genetic variants that are helping you reaching a, an old age um, because in that environment that helps you. If you put these people in another environment, it will not help them. So that complicates things even more, right? But in general, the, the main problem we actually have is that we do not look so much in different ethnicities when we talk about longevity, because the longevity studies that we have currently are mostly of European descent. We have some from China and from Japan, but in comparison to European population, this is very small. We have nothing from Africa, nothing from South America, nothing from even, I would say, Australia, um, other parts of Asia. So we are in that sense also very limited in our knowledge in what will contribute to longevity in these different populations. But APOE seems to work also in, for example, people in China and Japan, Japan, but it's not the major hit there. There they actually find, they find it, but they have other variants which might be um, stronger than APOE. And in some populations, we might not even detect APOE because there, it doesn't matter because for example, their diet is not, nothing to do with cholesterol. So they have nothing, they have no benefit of, of, of initial benefit of, of obtaining the APOE4 allele or APOE2 allele. So this is something we are also suffering from that, that the diversity makes genetic studies more difficult, but we should also look more at diversity and get more diverse to find optimal um, treatments that can not only work in the European population, but across the world. This is what we ideally want. Right. We don't have anything resembling African blue zones and um, genetic studies from Africa, right? There, I mean, there is now, there is um, definitely a um, evolvement in that, that there's now, the African studies are now also creating bigger cohorts, they're getting more involved in genetic studies um, for different traits, but for longevity that hasn't happened yet. And it's also difficult for multiple reasons to study longevity in Africa, be, because we rely, for example, now a lot on, on birth certificates, on, on very well, uh, very well maintained registry data. If you go to a little bit less well-developed countries, this is not always kept track of. It's, it's much more difficult to get completely reliable information, especially if you think about generations that were a couple of generations back, right? Because we want to long-lived people. So for current generations, that's of course better, but the ones that we would currently use for longevity studies, that's very difficult sometimes to get reliable data on how old these people actually are. And then how would you determine if they are long-lived or not? That is, this is another complicated thing that we are facing. In, in Southeast Asia and East Asia, we also don't have that much. Do we have anything from Singapore? Do you know? So we, I mean, we don't have any longevity genetic data set from Singapore that I have worked with. Mm -hmm. I may, I don't know, maybe they're setting it up, but at the moment it's not included yet in any genetic studies. We have one bigger cohort from China that we often include. You have some cohorts from Japan, but they not always have genome-wide data, so they haven't been included. But I, I'm not aware yet of any studies in Singapore. I would be 
really in favor of, of getting more of these studies. First of all, to confirm if they show the same things as we see in, in, the, in, the, in the other populations, but second also to, to see if they might harbor new things that we couldn't detect in the European population. Singapore should be pretty good. The health records are pretty decent. People are very long-lived and there's a very nice ethnic mix of Chinese, Malay and Indian. So that could be very helpful for that kind of study. Yeah, then the only thing is would be you would need to get the genetic data, which is then, because that's often also the limiting factor that although there's good records of long-lived people, then they don't have the genetic data. So, of course, they haven't contributed yet to the studies because that need to be collected. And nowadays, it's also becoming cheaper to measure it. But that was in the beginning also an issue that it was quite expensive to get genetic data. And, and now with the current cost for sequencing, it becomes also easier and more affordable to, to get bigger studies. All right, let's see what the future brings. And maybe we can also briefly talk about what we want or hope to see in the future. What, what do you expect will happen, advances in the field? In the field of genetics or in the field of aging in general? Well, aging, gen genetics of longevity, yeah. Yeah, well, I think what, what we, we are trying to do is still optimize the longevity phenotype. This is one thing that we are trying to do to better define um, what a genetically enriched long-lived person is. And if we have a better definition for that and we are working on that, then we want to see if we can collect people meeting that definition so that hopefully with even a smaller sample size, but a better defined phenotype, we might still be able to find things. So this is one direction I think we are trying to get into, trying to optimize the phenotype. The second thing would be that we move away a bit from the common variants, and that's what you already see happening, that people are doing now more sequencing studies. So people are sequencing long-lived people, try to find rare variants. But then again, we need the functional studies like I'm doing to really prove that they are doing something. One other thing that could be helping is if we identify good biomarkers for aging, right? So if we have a good marker that is very well predictive of for example, how, how well you age or if you become long-lived, then you can use that as an alternative measure instead of longevity. Because now we have to wait and see which people become long-lived and we compare the long-lived with the shorter-lived. But you need to have large cohorts, long waiting times before you reach that. Well, if you have a good marker that will predict how, long somebody, how old somebody will become, you can, of course, also use that for genetic studies and then maybe identify... Um, in that way, genetic variants contributing to the trade. So there's also my hope that that we will get better biomarkers that we can use um, for this. I don't think we will ever find a perfect proxy for longevity, but at least if it has a strong correlation, it will already help us. And um, yeah, and I hope people come up with more alternative analysis techniques that might help us in the future. Like ideally, I would love to study gene-gene interactions. For example, where you see if it's combinations of certain variants that in combination result in longevity, but maybe not by themselves. But this kind of analysis are again very underpowered at the moment, but there might become new methods available that, that can deal with that, which is my hope that, um, that we will go more in the direction where we can look really at the gene, gene and gene environment interactions, because there's a lot to gain there, I think. Those are all very good suggestions. Maybe 
I can add two brief questions slash suggestions from my side. So as you mentioned, some of these SMP studies, they only focus, well, they per definition only focus on single nucleotide variants. And it is, will be very interesting to look at indels, in whatever you have, inversions, deletions, larger duplications and everything, which is still a bit hard to study with, with even whole genome sequencing because of the short reads. So maybe in the future, we will have um, even long read sequencing. That will be very cool. Yeah, and, and we have tried it already a bit, right? I mean, we have, because with these genotyping areas, you can get information about CNVs. So we tried that as well in two populations uh, a couple of years back, which was led by by the by the people from Denmark, and where we mm -hmm. contributed with with our study from the Netherlands as well. But it's very difficult there to find CNVs that are shared between populations. So to find ones that where you can really say, okay, this is the same CNV that is across populations showing something. So there's additional difficulties there with. How big is the insertion deletion? Um, when do you consider something the same? So I think definitely there is something to gain there. Um, when we could get the good methodologies also to say, okay, it doesn't have to be exactly the same, but if it's, for example, the same part of the, the, the genome that's knocked out, then we consider it the same. So yeah, it's a good suggestion. And uh, I hope indeed with sequencing, we might be able to, to dive more into that than we can do with um, the arrays that we have um, for the, that we are currently using for the genetic association studies. Great. My last question is, has anyone looked at, um, let's say data from these commercial vendors like 23andMe, would it be even useful for research? Has anyone tried to collaborate? I, I don't know. Not in our field, but in other fields they have. So for example, take telomere length, I think mm -hmm. that's, that's one of the, the, the things they focused on, that they also did uh, association studies with 23andMe data. Of course, you need there to have the right phenotype, right? So 23andMe, I think, will ask, how old are you? Um, I'm not sure if they are allowed, for example, to keep track, how old have you become, right? Because mm -hmm. that's the interesting question. Or I don't know if they collect data about how old your parents become, which could be, again, this parental age. If they would collect this kind of data, it might be possible to use it. But there are, of course, always restrictions with, with using this kind of data set. Um, and one of the things is also the phenotypic definitions, because they are often just questionnaire-based. And questionnaire-based things are working normally a little bit less well than actual measurement. So it's always a bit tricky. But it might be in the future if, if they get to age-related phenotypes or longevity-related phenotypes, then we might be able to, to try to use that data in the future. But we haven't done that yet. No. Okay, I'm looking forward to all those new studies. Yeah, I also really hope that, um, that more people get into the, into the genetics field. I mean, it's, it's always indeed like we have this discussion and it it's always starts very disappointed that we don't identify much. But I think there's still a lot to gain there. And I... I still hope there will be more people that that want to want to study more um, genetics in in humans because there's not a, a, in relation to longevity because the subfield is still quite small and uh, I think there's also room for improvement. Getting new ideas from people that um, that come new into the field would definitely benefit um, our work. 
All right. That was a great podcast. I really love human genetics of aging, even though it's totally puzzling to me. So let us recap what I think is the major point of this podcast and also a major riddle remaining in the science. So we have strong monogenic longevity phenotypes in mice. Why do we not have them in humans? So we have, for example, growth hormone knockout mice that live for a very long time. And there are two theories, basically, why we don't have this in humans. One would be that we have not looked hard enough. These phenotypes or these genes will be very, very rare. So we're talking about very rare variants, and we may not have the tools to detect them right now. Or put another way, maybe these variants exist, and we know about them, but we have not performed the right studies to prove that they're increasing longevity. So for example, it remains to be seen whether Laurent dwarfism in humans, whether these mutations do extend lifespan, as would be expected based on the mouse data, because this dwarfism is similar to growth from a knockout dwarfism. But the second theory is a bit more pessimistic. Maybe these variants do not exist. So one proponent of this idea is Peter Fadichev. He believes, to paraphrase, that all the easy tricks we use to extend mouse lifespan have been already found by evolution and incorporated in humans. I remain somewhat agnostic. The second argument is surely true to some extent, but I don't think it rules out the first option either. Okay, then maybe also a second brief comment about the things we did not mention. I still remain confused about gene and environment interactions and gene-to-gene -gene interactions. So as far as I can tell, most GWAS studies assume simple additivity of SNPs with our gene-to-gene -gene interactions. And it's not entirely clear to me if this is a simplification, but it's necessary to make such large data mathematically tractable whether there is good evidence to support it. Either way, these additive models that also assume no crazy harmful pleiotropy between genes are one of the reasons why people are getting excited about polygenic embryo selection. While I do not think this is the most viable strategy to extend human lifespan, I would nonetheless love to discuss this controversial topic in the future. So, looking forward to future episodes and future interviews with Joris. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Aging Science Podcast. Hope to see you again.